Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. What you're about to listen to is a conversation that I recently had with Carol Benedict about her book, Golden Silk Smoke, A History of Tobacco in China, 1550 to 2010. That came out with University of California Press in 2011, just last year. Now, this is indeed a history of tobacco in China, but it's also much, much more than that. Um, it's very much a kind of global history, um, taking a particular object or set of objects and a particular locality as its focus, but ranging very widely to use these uh, particular foci to show um, really broad global collect- connections, both um, within China and its changing instantiations over um, the several hundred year period. And and also um, outside of China. It's a book that brings together a wide range of different kinds of sources and evidence to tell a story. Um, and it's also a really fantastic read. So I hope you enjoy. Hi, Carol. Hi, Carla. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, to be with us today to talk about your book. It's my great pleasure. So I'm here today to talk with Carol Benedict about her recent book, Golden Silk Smoke, A History of Tobacco in China, 1550 to 2010, and that came out in 2011 with the University of California Press. Now, for listeners who haven't yet had the chance to read this exceptionally rich book, um, the book for me was really many things at the same time. Among other things, it's both an exceptionally rich account of an exceptionally important object in Chinese and global history. It's a fascinating history of modern China as told on the leaves of a plant as well, or rather on a group of plants. So thank you so much, Carol. It's a wonderful book, and I had a wonderful time reading it and really learned oh, a lot. thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. So could you start us off a little bit by saying um, just a little bit about yourself and how and what brought you to the study of China? Well, I grew up in California, and so I was always facing west, looking across the Pacific. And when I went to university at the University of California, Santa Cruz, I decided I wanted to study Chinese. And that launched me on my career, uh, which I've been teaching now for uh, more than 20 years. Um, although I did take some time before going to graduate school to travel and work in China and Taiwan and various parts of Asia before that. So certainly since I was an undergraduate, China has been an important focal point of my um, professional career. Great. So what brought you to the study of tobacco in particular? What brought you to this project? Well, I'm a social historian of disease and medicine in China. My first book was on the history of bubonic plague in the 19th century. And as I cast my eye around contemporary public health problems in China, it was clear that the infectious diseases of the past, which had been so problematic for China in the early 20th century, were very much under control. And that really what China is now facing in terms of public health issues are so-called diseases of affluence. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obesity uh, certainly is increasingly a problem in China. But more profoundly, smoking-related illnesses are 
of substantial, um, there's a, an enormous burden of disease in China related to smoking. And so I got interested in looking, thinking about the deep historical roots of China's contemporary smoking epidemic. And that's what launched me on the project. As I got into it, I became more and more interested in tobacco as an object of material culture and also as an object of um, Chinese culture more, more broadly. So the book is both looking at the historical roots of China's contemporary epidemic, but it's also a history of uh, consumption practices and how consumption, consumption practices in China changed over a very long period of time. Mm-hmm. Great. Now, this book, for again, for listeners who haven't yet had the chance to read it, um, you you bring together an amazing range of sources in this study, right? I mean, it, it goes from um, sources on early modern culture through medical texts and historical texts and fiction and film and radio, and it's really an incredible archive of sources on modern Chinese history that you're bringing to bear here. What was the research process like? How um, how long did you spend working on this, and um, how did you go about doing the research for this book? Well, the research and writing took a very long time. I started the project in 2001 mm-hmm. and didn't really finish it until 2009, which is when you know production of the book began. And then, as you mentioned, it came out in 2011. And part of the reason that it took such a long time is because, as you mentioned, each chapter um, is based on a different kind of source and also a different historiographical um, (laughs) secondary sources uh, that that I was using. So um, the project is, I did not do archival research for the book. It's largely based on materials that can be found in libraries, either published sources or things like uh, local gazetteers and newspapers and so on. So it was a library-based project. But indeed, the different kinds of sources meant that I I basically spent a year on each chapter, deeply researching uh, each particular chapter and delving deeply into those sources that each chapter uses. Now, I have to say that um, there, there is a enormous interest within China among certain segments um, uh, of the scholarly population in the history of tobacco. Uh, Just as in the West, uh, the tobacco industry has, um, in China, has archived many materials relating to the history of tobacco. So there are lots of collections of primary sources that are published, but um, because these are not produced necessarily by scholars, they were not necessarily careful about identifying where those particular primary sources originated. So I used many of those published collected, uh, collected works of different primary sources about tobacco, but then I had to do the detective work of finding where those primary sources originated. So a lot of the research was actually going back and finding the original primary documents and placing them in context um, was a lot of the detective work that I had to do. And it's, uh, it's, it's incredible even, I mean, the fact that you started this only in 2001, even nine years to produce this kind of a text is actually incredibly quick. 
Oh, well, it didn't feel so at the time, but thank you. But I mean, just trying to imagine balancing a, a teaching, you know, teaching load with doing this kind of really immense research that grounds each chapter. And you're ranging from 1550 to 2010. So it's not only an incredible array of kinds of material, but it's also an amazing sweep through Chinese history. It really is a textbook of Chinese history through tobacco in many ways. Well, one of the real pleasures of writing this book because I trained primarily as a modern historian, a historian of 19th and 20th century China. Mm -hmm. So one of the the great pleasures was um, being able to go back and do extensive reading on the historiography of late imperial China and relearning in many ways what I had learned in graduate school and getting back up, getting up to speed on many of the newer works that had come online since I started teaching. So uh, for me, it was very revelatory in terms of learning about um, recent work on late Ming and, and Qing history. And I hope that that's reflected the, the great pleasure I took in reading colleagues' work. I hope that's reflected in the pages of the book. Absolutely. And, and that's actually a great segue to get us into the book itself. Because you start with, um, in the introduction um, and in the first chapter, um, introducing the world of early modern um, China and tobacco coming into early modern China, but in the context of larger global um, themes and larger global economies that China is part of um, in this period. So you start us off um, talking about the early modern history of tobacco. Um, could you say a little bit for us about the, the ways that China's experience of tobacco in early modernity uh, differed from that of other early modern societies that were also encountering tobacco. So one of the central themes of the book is to place China in a comparative perspective with other early modern societies that are dealing basically with the same phenomenon, basically the globalization of this new world crop that uh, is only first seen in 1492 by Christopher Columbus and his crew. And then, which quickly becomes globalized in the 16th century. Um, and so China is part of that story. And in some ways, Chinese ex the Chinese experience with tobacco is not all that different from the experience of those in the, uh, in the Middle East or in Europe or anywhere else in Eurasia that tobacco spread in the 16th and early 17th century. Um, there are certainly some differences in terms of once tobacco um, arrives in China, the way in which it comes to be produced domestically within China is quite different from what happens in Europe. As is well known, in the European case, tobacco continues to be grown in the New World, either on plantations with enslaved labor or on small, uh, smaller farms uh, American, North American farms, and then is imported into Europe. It's not, it's not really grown in Europe in the way that it comes to be grown domestically in many parts of the world, including China. So in China, domestic production is done by the small, uh, farmer agrarian economy that we know is, uh, the basis of Chinese agriculture in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century. So that's the primary difference is how, it, how it's produced, where it's produced, by whom it's produced, and how um, uh, the location of the, the production. In terms of the early modern globalization itself, one of the main things I try to do in the first chapter is to point out that 
this is not simply a process of Europeans bringing tobacco to Chinese shores and then somehow tobacco just spreads naturally across the landscape. Uh, one of the central themes of the first chapter is to try to indicate that there was active agency on the part of Asian actors in diffusing tobacco and other New World crops uh, at that time throughout East Asia. Uh, so I look at the tobacco spread into China, not just along the southern coast, the southeast coast, but uh, four different compass points where tobacco actually enters Chinese borderlands. So I look at its introduction through the Indian Ocean realm into southwestern China. I look at how it spreads across Central Asia into northwestern China. And then I look at how it comes into the northeast from Japan and Korea, as well as the southeast coast. Right. And one of the great things that um, you're also doing in this book, and this is the, if, um, the broad connections and commonalities that China shared um, with other societies, as you put it, um, in this uh, encounter is one of the themes. The other theme, or one of the other themes that you emphasize, um, is the importance of change, but also continuity in Chinese consumption patterns across the late imperial modern divide. And I think one of the things that the book does really well, um, as we and we'll see this as we move down uh, through the chapters, is to really kind of buck the trend that you see in some um, currents of history of China, which is broken very firmly along dynastic divides, right? We have Ming history and Qing history and so on and so forth. And this the history that you present us with here really doesn't do that. I mean, you, you really show much more of the kind of the way this history of tobacco plays out that's not necessarily firmly cut along the you know these clean dynastic divides. And I think it makes for a very um, rich way of understanding um, late imperial and then into modern Chinese history. Right. So one of the, the second central theme, as you mentioned, was to try to look at continuity and change across the late imperial and modern divide. And again, going back to the fact that um, much of my training and then much of my teaching is in the 20th century. As a 20th century historian looking back in history, it was really important to me to try to tease out the kind of earlier um, origins of a practice which is often thought of as a 20th century invention, the cigarette. And to be sure, the cigarette is, you know, a, the industrial uh, cigarette is an artifact of the late 19th century, and we'll get to that in subsequent chapters. But one of the central arguments of the book is that China's contemporary smoking culture really has to be seen within its deep historical context because there are these deep historical continuities in terms of the sociability of Chinese smoking, ideas about tobacco and health, and so on. And that was one of the central things I was trying to get at by taking such a huge span of time from tobacco's introduction in about 1550 down to the present in 2010. Now, one of the really important contributions of the book, I think, um, is going to be, if it hasn't already been, uh, a, a kind of your attention to a set of issues that's not specific necessarily to China or to tobacco, but that's more about um, the way we as historians do and can treat issues of um, not just material culture, but also consumer culture. And so you say, very, I think you make a very compelling case through the book, and you um, bring this up for the first time in the introduction, but then continue um, to say this later in the book, that not only do we need to remember that tobacco is not one thing, 
right? It's not one kind of object, um, but also that um, you're urging us to think more kind of critically and be more thoughtful about the idea of consumer culture, right? You say this is a social history and a cultural history, and um, you say in the introduction that the concept of consumer culture must be used with caution, and I think this was um, a very productive intervention, and can you say a little bit about uh, what you mean by that? So one of the reasons I chose to look at tobacco was because this was a, an object of consumption that was nearly universal after its global spread in the 16th century. Um, so it's an item that can be easily compared across societies. And as we know, the historiography of consumer culture has been very, very vibrant for the last several decades. And that historiography was initiated by historians of North America and Europe and the storyline was basically that what we regard of uh, as modern consumer culture uh, had its origins within Europe and its colonies, and it spread globally outward from Europe to other parts of the world, particularly in the 19th and 20th century, and morphed into what we think of now as modern global mass consumer culture which again generally is regarded as a unidirectional spread from the West to other societies that did not have consumer culture before their interactions, their, uh, before the impact of the West. So in line with a lot of other historians, not just historians of East Asia, but also historians now of Europe and North America as well, I'm trying to be part of a revisionary, a revisionist trend which recognizes that consumption is an act that is common to all cultures. And one can find commonalities, common patterns across different societies. And also this notion that of globalization of consumer culture is not necessarily unidirectional from one society outward to other societies that it's a very complex story that has to be regarded and looked at in a global context. And it seemed that tobacco, because of its universality after the 16th century, the fact that it was socially inclusive, the fact that it was sold on many different levels, as you say, it was not just one thing. It was both a luxury commodity. It was also an everyday item of consumption for the lower classes. And this is true in pretty much all societies. It seemed to be an item of consumption that would serve to investigate this issue of cross-cultural comparison um, using China as, as the case study. So that's, again, that was one of the kind of central uh, impetuses for doing the study in the first place. Thank you so much. So you continue, so the book continues on in the first chapter to um, talk about a couple of the things that you've uh, already mentioned. You talk about the introduction of tobacco in maritime Ming China and then in the um, in early Qing Manchuria and eastern Mongolia, which is really fascinating, I think, as we get later in the book um, when we see the kind of ethnic um, dimension of the association of certain um, modes of tobacco use with um, Manchu and Mongolian identity. So that's actually really fascinating. You also talk here about um, the introduction of water pipe tobacco 
um, into China. And since this actually goes on to be um, kind of a central historical thread uh, in later years as well, can you talk a little bit about the introduction of water pipes to China? Well, this is a perfect illustration of why one needs to stop thinking about globalization as being a Western artifact, because water pipe tobacco um, clearly spread into China from a different source, um, likely from India, possibly from Iran, because the first water pipes uh, used for smoking tobacco emerged probably, as I say, in southern India, and uh, then spread to Persia. And it was through contacts between the Indian Ocean realm and the Middle East that the water pipe first came into China. And its um, origins are in Gansu, far removed from the Chinese maritime coast. And it seems fairly clear that Central Asian traders were responsible for bringing both the water pipe and a particular kind of water pipe tobacco that's still grown in Gansu today into the Chinese northeast northwestern frontier. So again, this is an illumination of this major theme of the book, which is that China's a participant in early modern global trends, but that those trends are not in any way unidirectional uh, or limited to China's interaction with Europeans along the southern coast. And so in the next chapter, um, you really talk about what happens as tobacco um, farming and consumption and production uh, becomes uh, indigenized in a certain way. So tobacco starts being grown um, in China. And this is happening in the late 16th and the 17th centuries. And this is when tobacco becomes, as you say, a freely traded cash crop um, cultivated by small holders on innumerable tiny plots. And this is often in the hill country above the Yangtze. Now, the diffusion of tobacco as a commercial crop actually starts from a kind of epicenter in southern Fujian, as you tell us, so I think really fascinatingly. Can you talk a little bit about um, about this and sort of why Fujian was the center of um, what then winds up becoming a very dispersed network of um, cash crops throughout China? Right. So one of the other um, sub-arguments to the book is that um, these developments are highly historically contingent. There's no um, no reason why tobacco had to develop as it did within China. Um, and so one of the contingencies here is the Ming-Qing transition. Tobacco spreads throughout the highlands of China uh, during the same period of time in which there's great deal of political unrest and political chaos. And it's not by accident that um, many of these migrants who are moving out of Fujian into the Yangtze River highlands are establishing this crop during a period of time in which there isn't a great deal of political control over various areas of China. So that's one thing to keep in mind. In terms of why it takes hold in Fujian and moves outward from there, um, this has to do, this is obviously not unique to the book. This is a well-established uh, history written uh, about by many other scholars. It has to do with the incredible mobile nature of Fujian society at this period of time, um, roughly between 1500 to 1750. And you have migrants moving in many, many different uh, directions from uh, Fujian 
from southern Fujian particularly, you have many Fujianese going overseas to places like Manila, to Southeast Asia, uh, and so on. And you have others who are moving in the other direction into the interior of Fujian and then from there to other parts of, of China. And it's the this geographical mobility of the Fujianese, which initially establishes tobacco as a cash crop along the southern Fujian crop, uh, southern Fujian coast, because it's, even though we can never know for sure, sure who actually brought tobacco to Fujian, it's almost certain that Fujianese who are, uh, southern Fujianese who are in Manila have encountered this exotic new commodity in their interactions with the Spanish uh, in Manila. It initially gets established along the southern Fujian coast. Um, migrants and merchants carry it then into the interior. Um, Minxi, uh, western Fujian, comes to be a central growing area uh, in the 16th century. And then from there, Hakka and um, Hokkien migrants move into other parts of China the Yangtze River Highlands, carrying tobacco along with other cash crops, indigo, and, and other things that they're growing for sale. And um, again, this is not this is not based on my own primary research. This is I'm relying on other scholars here who have documented this migration process very thoroughly. Um, it's just I emphasize the ways in which they tobacco followed these migrants, these Pengming migrants as they moved from Fujian into the Chinese interior. And tobacco is one of these really essential cash crops that the Pengming migrants are growing in the highlands. And you go on in this chapter to talk about the fact that um, it's actually quite successful in the highlands, and there's many reasons for this, and you take us through um, really, I think, a fascinating treatment that respects the materiality of the object, um, that we're talking about a, a plant, right? And, we're, and you, right. you um, talk about the, you know, the material conditions necessary to grow tobacco and how this actually shaped what happens um, when we look at the historical dispersal of this as an object and as a crop. Now, this is actually, um, this raises a really, for me, fascinating methodological issue, which is in this book, I mean, looking at something that is very much um, a growing, living material object, and also at the same time, being very sensitive as you are here to the very different ways that it functions as an object in very different local um, cultural and social contexts. How was it for you to um, to kind of negotiate between these two? Um, some some would find it very difficult to negotiate between these two poles of, on the one hand, um, you know, making use of our knowledge of the experience and um, scientific background of an object as it is instantiated now, and at the same time, which I think you do really well, um, localizing it in its particular context. Did that was that difficult at all, or did that? So, so what was your experience, I guess, methodologically in in rec reconciling these two, um, at least two different ways of um, thinking about this kind of object in particular? Well, I think one of the things that I saw very soon as I was going through um, local gazetteers and you know materials related to tobacco cultivation was the enormous array of different names for tobacco, 
which clued me into the fact that this was not one object, or at least it wasn't thought about as one um, one plant. Um, I mean, we tend to think of tobacco now as um, the kind of bright tobacco that's grown in Maryland and Virginia. We think of it as being grown for the sole purpose of used, being used in rolled cigarettes. But in fact, tobacco has an enormous variety and enormous um, range of different qualities, different uh, flavors, and so on, depending on the conditions under which it's grown. So I educated myself about um, tobacco species, the different ways it's cultivated, and so on. And the way it was cultivated in the uplands of China was not unique to China. In fact, in many peasant cultures, including some in, in Central America, um, this kind of um, what, what was done in China initially, the slash and burn agriculture, uh, just throwing the seed down into the ground, um, not taking a great deal of pains to a weed or to fertilize or any of the kinds of things that we think of in terms of um, higher quality tobacco cultivating farms, farms that cultivate higher quality tobacco. Um, you know, this is very common uh, in earlier centuries. And in fact, um, tobacco grows very easily. It's one of my colleagues who works on tobacco in Latin America says it grows like a weed. You know, it's, it's very easy to grow. So I just had to educate myself about that. But again, I think going back to your question, um, I had to recognize very early on that tobacco was many things. Um, even though in the book I still use the singular form of tobacco, in fact, I'm talking about many different um, kinds of material objects. So thank you so much. So you go on in this chapter to um, discuss um, the, uh, the developments that lead to regional specialization in tobacco. And not only um, does the total acreage of tobacco cultivation increase, but the localities where tobacco is grown proliferates, and there's significant product diversification as a result. Right. Which is really fascinating. Um, you, not only, though, is there product diversification, but there's also um, a history of kind of very diverse ways that tobacco is experienced and is used um, in the intervening years. And the next chapters actually take us through this, this really engaging history of uh, transforming both local and temporal um, modes of tobacco consumption. So in um, the next chapter, Learning to Smoke Chinese Style, 1644 to 1750, you take us through the ways that tobacco becomes indigenized in China. Now, this is happening in the context, um, at least in the early part of this um, chapter, of um, really kind of transformations in late Ming culture and then um, into the early Qing. Can you talk, um, for our listeners who may not be familiar with this context, about the ways that this kind of, um, the particular characteristics of late Ming culture set the stage for um, what becomes the prevailing uh, tobacco culture of the time? So, late Ming culture... Um the general characteristics that are repeated or that are mentioned, you know, pretty much in any text that you pick up on, on late Ming culture is the incredible intensification of commercialization, um, 
the expansion of luxury items of consumption that the elite are purchasing, um, the crossover between different social groups. So there's a lot more cultural mixing between socioeconomic classes that, um, or cultural uh, groups that perhaps in earlier uh, centuries had not necessarily met with one another, including crossover between uh, courtesans and gentry women, as Dorothy Coe has argued in her uh, book about 17th century women. So there's a lot of um, cultural intermingling, as well as an extensive explosion of different kinds of goods, luxury goods that people are purchasing and using. So tobacco enters this context. And here, of course, I'm really talking about urban China in a particular, in particular areas of China. Um, so tobacco enters this highly urbanized, highly commercialized, um, socially mixing culture. Um, and my argument in the book is that it initially tobacco comes in into Chinese borderlands, and it's usually it's initially used by those who are considered more marginal by what we might call, um, uh, well, we will call the elite, um, the Ming and Qing elite. And what happens in the 17th century is that this initially marginalized borderland um, practice of smoking tobacco is increasingly taking, taken up by the cultural and political elite and crosses over not only from the lower socioeconomic classes to the wealthier and more politically powerful, but it also crosses over from men to women. And so that by... Um, 1700 or so, um, tobacco smoking is pervasive throughout all of society, and it's used by men and women and children. It's used by uh, both elite and uh, non-elite, and although this takes some time, eventually it's also used both in urban areas and in rural areas. Now, this chapter, um, again, for listeners who haven't yet experienced it, um, has just wonderful vignettes uh, ranging from you know, Kangxi gifting two high officials with crystal pipes that you know drew both flame and smoke to the lips. Is sort of maybe apocryphal, but <laughs> it was a nice story. So <laughs> it's a great story, though. Um, and you, you know, you talk about. Um, the link between tobacco and alcohol is tobacco is treated as an intoxicant or a stimulant and also have wonderful descriptions of kinds of parties and party use um, of this material. And um, there's a, a lovely description of an account of tobacco poems. Um, so here, here again, this is just kind of in microcosm. Um, one of the, I think, really fascinating things about this book is that there are so many different kinds of sources and cultural and social milieu in which um, we're looking at uh, the, the role of tobacco really as a kind of um, player in social life and cultural life of the period. Well, part of, excuse me, part of that, um, the richness of the sources for this partially emerges out of this period of time because connoisseurs begin to fold tobacco into those kinds of luxury goods, those kinds of luxury commodities, um, like tea and um, 
uh, alcohol to some extent, that they would want to write poems about or that they would want to write connoisseur guides to. And so it really becomes uh, part of literati culture. It's folded in along with tea and, and alcohol and so on into the leisurely world of the educated elite. And this is where, this is something that contrasts a bit um, with Europe, Europe and the Middle East, because scholars of tobacco in Europe and the Middle East have argued that tobacco smoking really ushered in a kind of revolution of sociability. New places, coffee houses, for example, where Europeans or people in the Middle East could go, men in the Middle East in this case, could go and sit and drink coffee and smoke and talk politics or whatever particular um, way that they would want to uh, enjoy the company of their friends. In China, this sociability was already there. And what happens is tobacco smoking is blended in. It almost immediately becomes the marker of hospitality that it still remains today so that when guests came to visit, one would offer them both tea and tobacco. And as you mentioned, it's a center point of poetry um, uh, gatherings where people would, with, where literati would actually come together and write poems about tobacco. And this enormous corpus of tobacco poetry has been collected and has been published in some of those collections that I mentioned at the outset of the hour. So I only touched the tip of the iceberg of the poems that are written about tobacco. There's just an enormous number of them. And that continues, by the way, we'll get there later when we talk about subsequent chapters, but that continues into the 20th century where 20th century writers are also fascinated with tobacco and write essays and uh, poetry and so on about tobacco. So that's a continuing strand from the 17th century forward, this kind of literate culture about tobacco and smoking. And one of the other uh, threads that actually continues through the book and that continues through this history um, is a topic that you also talk about in this chapter, which is um, tobacco use among women. Right. Now, you've you've, um, discussed that a little bit um, just a few minutes ago, but this chapter looks at um, tobacco use both among courtesans, prostitutes, and elite entertainers, and also among um, sort of other kinds of more sort of, quote, respectable women in the high Qing. Um, this is really the point in the book where um, the connection between tobacco and sex or sexuality emerges as a theme that we'll see coming up later as well. Um, can you talk briefly about this connection here between um, tobacco and sexuality as it's manifest in this uh, material? Well, the... The story of um, women smoking prior to the 20th century was difficult to get at, so I tried my best in this chapter to do that, because by all accounts, both by foreign accounts and by Chinese accounts, smoking among women before about 1900 was nearly universal. Um, so it does seem it was very, very pervasive. When it started is very difficult to get at. Um, there are accounts from the 17th century of um, female poets who mention their uh, tobacco smoking and so on. So it seems to have started sometime around the Ming Qing transition, but um, not 100%. Uh, in terms of the issue of sexuality and smoking, um, 
Man wrote Boudoir poetry, which would talk about smoking together with their lover. So as you indicated, uh, very early on, there's this connection between smoking and sex in China, just as there is in Western culture as well. And I speculate, it's somewhat speculation, but I speculate based on Dorothy Coe's um, argument about the way in which courtesan culture and so-called respectable women's culture is blended at this period of time. I speculate that some of the friendships that sprung up between courtesans, who almost certainly were smoking together with their male clients, um, that this is the way in which it entered into upper-class women's uh, lives. It possibly could have come in through servants, um, you know, from Fujian or whatever, who already were smoking. But again, it's, it's going back to this um, point that this is a, a period of time when there's a lot of crossover between different groups and different classes. And so women are learning to smoke from one another, whether from courtesans to gentry women or from lower class women to uh, gentry women. But, you, sorry. No, no, go on. I was going to say the um, the connection between sexuality and smoking is only one aspect of this early uh, Qing history of smoking because, um, as we've already mentioned, respectable women also smoked. And it seems that there was no issue about women smoking together with guests, together with menfolk in the family, together with other women. The only issue was whether or not they smoked publicly. And if they did so, they were regarded as coarse or uncouth or, again, because of the issues of sexuality, there was some issues about chastity if they were to smoke um, openly and publicly. And this connection between um, tobacco smoking and women and the public or private nature um, of that uh, practice and how that's actually um, how that ramifies into arguments about morality or social health um, is something that we'll also see later on. Right. So you go on in the next chapter to um, talk about a topic that's very dear to my own heart, and I, I love this, um, which is, uh, this is a chapter that introduces the general landscape of medical culture and debates in the Ming and Qing as they shaped um, the understanding of tobacco as a medical drug or as a sort of drug food, um, as you also describe it. Can you talk a little bit about um, the way that tobacco is actually understood um, as a medicament? Sure. And again, this is where the issue of historical contingency is really important. Because tobacco comes into China in a time in which there's a lot of questioning about um, tradition on the part of many scholar physicians. Um, and so there's an openness to innovative therapies. And initially, when tobacco comes in, and this is, again, this is worldwide, um, tobacco is widely regarded as a medicinal substance. In China, in southern China in particular, it early on gains a reputation as being a very effective remedy to prevent malaria or malarial-type diseases, because, of course, there's no malaria per se uh, or biomedicine terms it such. Um, so it is introduced initially um, as, as a medicine, although I argue that it's not simply that. Also, the sociability has to, the, the um, fact that it's a very highly sociable 
act to smoke together with friends and colleagues um, is very, very important here. But in terms of the medical uses, um, it's analogized to betel nut in southern China. It's analogized to ginseng in northern China. So it comes into the Chinese Materia Medica with references to failure substances. But it's not it's not accepted only because it can be analogized to other medicines. The very innovative and foreign and exotic nature of it also makes it quite attractive to physicians like Zhang Jiebin, who are looking, as I say, for new remedies to deal with what seem to be new medical issues. Um, for example, syphilis, which comes in um, into China in the 16th century. Um, other, there's a, as Marta Hansen's work has demonstrated, there is a large number of epidemics in the late 16th century and also in the early 17th century. So these physicians are looking for new and innovative medicinals, new drugs that they can utilize against what are perceived to be new epidemiological challenges. And tobacco, in the particular chapter we're talking about, um, is it's regarded as a uh, warm substance. It's regarded as a replenishing substance. And so, therefore, it fits very nicely into the materia medica of doctors like Zhang Jiebin, who are part of what um, Chinese medical historians call the one bu shui pai, which is the um, warm and replenish school of thought. And so in this chapter, I talk in great, great detail about why the one bu shui pai would find tobacco to be um, something that they would want to recommend and prescribe to, to patients. And then this discourse is picked up by medical popularizers in the 18th century, and eventually tobacco becomes to be widely regarded by society at large as a medicine that can replenish um, a depletion, uh, that can... Uh, uh, greatly revitalize one's chi when one is um, depleted in that fashion. Again, this is not gender-specific. It can be used by men and women. It can be used by children. Uh, there's widespread ideas that tobacco can prevent not only malaria, but can also prevent epidemics more generically. Uh, there's ideas that it deals with digestive problems, that it can treat tumors, um, you know, a wide range of issues it's regarded as uh, being effective against. Having said that, um, it was pretty clear to me in my research that even though tobacco was regarded as having medical properties, in China as elsewhere, it was primarily used for social reasons. I mean, I, I would say that the medical rationales were always there, were persistently there, and they're still there uh, in some ways in contemporary China. But the more profound reason why people smoked was because it provided um, sociability and access to sociability. And I think and that's actually a, a really useful point, and I think that's a point that's going to resonate um, very strongly with historians of medicine, right? Because I think often um, we understand medicine now, the history of medicine broadly read as something that's inextricable from um, social life. Right. So 
Thank you. So you go on um, to, I'll, uh, I'll mention for our listeners that there's a lot of fascinating uh, material in this, um, in these uh, chapters that I'm just going to kind of um, very briefly blitz through. Um, but uh, the next chapter is very, very rich and takes us through um, really um, one, the first of, or among the first of many um, changes in the um, fashion of tobacco use and the consumption of tobacco. And in particular, um, you um, introduce here the um, idea that the sort of fashion system of tobacco, and I love that phrase, um, diverges by the mid-18th century along class and spatial location. And one of the transformations that you describe um, is the abandonment of a kind of shredded, the use of shredded tobacco or these long pipes um, as the primary mode of consumption um, by the elite um, in favor of snuff in the 18th century. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. Let me just first preface this by saying that earlier we were talking about consumption history or the history of consumer culture. And one of the ways in which historians of Europe and North America um, talked about China was to say that China had no fashion before the 20th century, or it had no consumer culture, it had no uh, and you know this was synonymous with fashion. So again, within this kind of revisionist historiography, following the lead of people like Antonio Fanani and others, um, I was trying to look at how patterns of consumption in China might actually be dynamic. So um, tobacco use changes over time. It's very dynamic. It's um, there is, as you as you've already said, a great deal of change in how different groups use tobacco, and that changes consistently over time. Um, you know, obviously not as quickly as we're used to in the 20th, 20th and 21st century, but nonetheless, one can discern changes over time. So that's this chapter is really about how tobacco use um, among different socioeconomic classes and occupational groups um, and, and in terms of gender changed from about 1680 through the 1790s. Um, now, the story of snuff has been told many times. It's a well-known story to people who, uh, to Qing historians, certainly, but also to people, you know, more general readers who are interested in um, the material culture of China. For, for obviously, snuff bottles are very, um, are collectibles, uh, extraordinarily popular collectibles and so on. So the story of snuff is well-known. But what I was trying to do was to look at the ways in which um, snuff became popularized over time, because initially it's brought in by the Jesuits. Initially, it's a very, very, very aristocratic form of using tobacco, which is limited to the political elite in Beijing. Um, but gradually over time, it filters downward from this very small elite group um, with contacts to the imperial court, um, to literati more generally, snuff never becomes um, widely used by the lower classes, but it does begin to be used by urbanites um, initially in Guangzhou and then in the cities of Jiangnan and so on. So it does, over the course of the 18th and 19th century, snuff becomes more and more available. Now, one of the really fascinating aspects of the history of snuff for me was I kept finding in references how the very best snuff 
came from Brazil. Mm-hmm. And this was repeated so frequently that I just got intrigued with this. This was counterpoised with histori- histories of um, Chinese tobacco. Um, for example, in Suchetta Mazumdar's wonderful book about sugarcane, she briefly mentions that the Portuguese tried to import Brazilian tobacco into China in the early 18th century and failed because tobacco was already so prolific throughout China that there was no market for it. And she's absolutely right when it comes to shredded tobacco. But one of the fascinating stories that I tried to get at was how Brazilian tobacco grown in Brazil in the 18th century was an exceedingly globalized commodity with markets in among uh, Native Americans in Canada um, in the Middle East, and also in China. So I tried to talk about, I tried to talk to find out more about this globally circulating um, commodity of Brazilian snuff tobacco. And I found out, um, you know, a bit. There's a lot more that could be done with that story. Um, and because Brazilian tobacco was being imported by the Portuguese through Macau, Guangzhou um, becomes the center of imported snuff in the 18th century, and uh, by the last two decades of the 18th century, it seems to be um, expanding in terms of use, not just the politically connected elite, but urbanites in Guangzhou more generally. So um, that's where I try to tell the story of snuff. There's also um, a popularization of water pipe tobacco. Earlier we talked about how water pipe tobacco was import into northwestern China from Central Asia or from the Indian Ocean realm, um, this water pipe tobacco becomes extraordinarily popular in the early 19th century. And this possibly because this is pure speculation on my part, but it's possibly because water pipe tobacco is regarded as particularly um, benign because there was recognition as early as the 17th century that tobacco could be detrimental to health. But there was a thought that if it was filtered through water, any particular um, problems or any particular harms of tobacco could be mediated by the water pipe. So I speculate that the popularity of the water pipe, particularly among the gentry, um, rural gentry in particular, and especially among women and older men, um, had to do with the emergence in the early 19th century, which was congruent with its rising popularity, um, of cholera. Uh, Because there's a lot of um, uh, discussions of how particular tobaccos grown in Gansu that are smoked in the water pipe are particularly effective against epidemics. So this is, you know, the cholera um, connection is just speculation on my part, but this is the period of time when water pipe tobacco comes to uh, take off and when the handheld Chinese the water pipe that we think of as the classic Chinese water pipe comes to be manufactured very widely throughout, uh, throughout China. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. I was just, you, you bring up um, Marta Hansen's work earlier as well, and and this is another point. Um, I just um, talked with Marta Hansen about her book last week. Oh. And she also brings up um, uh, 
the importance of, for, for at least uh, one of her authors who's really central to the later part of her story, the importance of having lived through cholera. Um, it really seems like cholera is coming up as a, a theme um, in a lot of um, the way we understand, uh, especially when it's not directly showing up in, the, in texts, um, what's happening um, in the history of medicine in China and healing and ideas about bodies and health. Right. Well, in the early 1820s, the emperor actually has to prohibit um, tobacco traders from Lanzhou um, from camping out in Chengdu. And um, he says there's so many tobacco traders here, they just have really got to leave. And so, again, you know, this is complete speculation, but this is precisely the period of time in which cholera is spreading throughout a lot, many parts of China. So there's, you know, maybe the people in Chengdu are trying to avoid cholera and they're buying up all this Lanjo tobacco in order to do so. Well, so let's get to cigarettes. Okay. Um, <laughs> so the next chapter moves from, again, this, this fascinating um, story into looking at the emergence of the Chinese cigarette industry. Um, and this chapter does so many really fascinating things, but one of the major um, things that it's trying to do as I um, read it, and I think as you uh, mentioned here in the chapter, um, it talks a great deal about the importance of the British American Tobacco Company to the history of cigarette smoking in China and to the way that it shapes, um, in some ways, the Chinese cigarette market. But also, um, you, you're making a very strong point in this chapter that I think is very, um, very enlightening, um, that it's not the case as other um, modes of cigarette historiography might emphasize that this is you know, machine-rolled cigarettes are kind of dominating the market, and that's the only story of um, cigarettes in modern China as they become popular. You, you really show us um, the importance of hand-rolled cigarettes um, and sort of niche marketing by local cigarette companies um, as they also become incredibly important to um, the early experience of cigarettes in China. Can you talk uh, about that a little bit for us? Yeah, so again, here I'm trying to go back to the historiography of consumer culture, particularly modern mass consumer culture, and interrogate it a bit and say, okay, yes, we have these transnational tobacco companies, particularly British American tobacco, who are instrumental in bringing new forms of uh, marketing into China. They're bringing new forms of manufacturing into China. This is undeniably the cigarette, the industrial cigarette is undeniably an import from outside of China. But to go from that to then assume that all cigarettes smoked in China were foreign, foreign made or industrial or even industrially made in Shanghai factories is overlooking the incredible resiliency of Chinese entrepreneurship at this time because even before British American tobacco is manufacturing cigarettes in China and selling them to Chinese consumers, overseas Chinese in the Philippines are importing hand-rolled Luzon cigarettes into southern Chinese markets and selling both Luzon cigarettes are from the Philippines and, you know, these mestizo or overseas Chinese are selling them to consumers uh, in southern China as early as the 1850s 18, through 1870s. Um, in the 1890s, when machine-rolled cigarettes begin to take hold, 
again, this is a story not just of European and American or British and American factories setting up shop, although that's a very important part of the story. We have a decade in which Egyptians and Turkish and Russians are all and Chinese and Japanese are all competing to get into the Chinese cigarette market. So it's a it's a much more complicated story than is often portrayed in some of the um, earlier uh, histories. Um, now, the, just the machine rolled cigarette, as I talk about in the chapter, and here I'm really building on the fabulous work of Sherman Cochran, um, his uh, classic work on British American tobacco. Um, so it's very, very clear that British American tobacco company after 1902 is having extraordinary success in selling its cigarettes to Chinese companies. But what's often overlooked is the fact that Chinese entrepreneurs are establishing smaller factories, some of them enormously successful, and other the, others of them kind of fly by night. They don't last very long. But they're purveying cigarettes to segments of the population that British American tobacco, despite its extraordinary capacity to penetrate deeply into local uh, culture and local society, is still not reaching. So one of the examples I provide is uh, a company that took native-grown tobacco, kind of coarse, poor-quality tobacco, shredded that might have in a previous age been used for shredded um, to smoke in long pipes, rolled it into newspapers, repackaged it into um, recycled packs from other companies, and then sold it to boatmen and transport workers along the Yangtze River. Um, now, this was extraordinarily aggravating to the larger companies, including British American Tobacco. They knew that this kind of entrepreneurial energy was being put into what might be called counterfeiting or pirating of cigarettes. But the fact is that these really cheap, low-cost cigarettes could be sold to a population that simply could not yet afford an industrially produced um, gene-rolled cigarette. Then in the 1920s, you have the phenomenon of Chinese entrepreneurs establishing workshops where they hand roll cigarettes, sometimes in pirated papers uh, with the brand name of the larger companies that they sneak in from Hong, Hong Kong and various other places. Um, they use female workers who are very, very skilled at rolling these beautifully standard, um, high-quality-looking cigarettes, sometimes rolled with tobacco that is um, recycled from cigarette butts that are swept off opera house floors and so on. So, you know, again, this incredible um, energy in terms of creating a, what's what's a new product in old tried-and-true ways, what we might call a handicraft industry kind of workshop that is more akin to a ching tobacco shredding workshop than it is to a modern factory, and yet producing what looks to be a standardized, high-quality, hygienic, modern cigarette. And in the 1930s, these hand-rolling workshops occupied some 25% of the cigarette market, and they were extraordinarily aggravating to British American Tobacco Company and the other major firms located in Shanghai. And those companies exerted extraordinary energy 
on the nationalist government and also on the British legation to try to deal with its competitors. But the point I make in the chapter is that when historians find anecdotal evidence or find photographic evidence of lower-class consumers smoking cigarettes, it's really hard to tell what the origins of that particular product was. Was it a Shanghai factory? Maybe. Was it a factory in Durham, North Carolina? Possibly. It's probably far more likely that it comes from a local hand-rolling workshop because that's likely the cigarette product that that particular consumer could afford. Right. And so speaking of Shanghai, actually, you go on um, in the book to talk about two chapters, um, to to talk in two chapters, rather, and I won't um, talk about these in detail just because I don't want to take up too much of your time, but there are two chapters um, in the book that look at the sort of the differentiation spatially and locally, um, not only um, between um, spaces of tobacco consumption and modes of tobacco consumption, but also um, between the ways that uh, cigarette smoking in particular was actually portrayed in literary sources. Um, So the chapter 7 does this um, uh, by looking at a sort of comparative treatment of tobacco consumption in Shanghai, um, Beijing, and Dingxian. Um, can you talk a little bit um, for our listeners about um, sort of what some of the major differences were in consumption between, say, Shanghai and Beijing? And, and I ask for that because then the next chapter afterwards, um, for listeners who are interested in uh, the really fascinating literary sources that you bring to bear, a lot of those literary um, authors will also um, differentiate, or you differentiate a kind of Shanghai style from a Beijing style of, sort of literary treatment of cigarette smoking as well. So... Um, do you mind talking about that for a little bit? No, that's fine. Um, this is one of the things that, you know, when one does a book like this, there's inevitably something that surprises or changes the course of one's research plan. So this is one area where, where I really was surprised because I started the book, again, with an eye to looking at the long history of Chinese consumption practices. And it was my assumption that I could locate the origins of China's 20th century modern mass culture within its deeper historical frame. But I didn't really think that, well, I didn't question that there was a modern mass consumer culture in China in the early 20th century because the cigarette was quintessentially regarded as this industrially produced product that was socially inclusive so that peasants, workers, urbanites, elite, were all smoking uh, this industrially produced cigarette, and this shows that a modern mass culture was underway in China in the opening decades of the 20th century. When I started to look at this more deeply, I was quite surprised to find that, in fact, the native pipe tobacco industry, by which I mean the shredded pipe, the loose tobacco used in long pipes, endured in most areas of the country for a very long time, and really in cities up until after 1949, and in much of the countryside until after 1978. So this was really a surprise to me. Um, I, I found this by looking at or trying to get at social, socially differentiated patterns of smoking in various parts of the country, 
And I looked at Shanghai, Beijing, and Dingxian because those were where uh, I could get at the social surveys from the 1920s and 1930s, which would give some indication of per capita smoking rates. Um, and that's what the chapter tries to do. It tries to answer who was smoking cigarettes, who continued to smoke pipe tobacco, um, what were the reasons why there was this differentiated pattern of consumption of different kinds of tobacco products. And what I found was that in Shanghai, there definitely was what we might call a modern mass consumer culture because anyone who smoked tobacco in Shanghai smoked it in cigarette form. Now, we have to keep the caveat in mind that, you know, where was their cigarette produced, possibly in a hand-rolling workshop, possibly in a factory with, you know, recycled tobacco products or recycled packaging or newspapers or whatever. But still, they were utilizing cigarettes rather than snuff or long pipes. In Beijing, the story is quite different. Um, it was apparent on the basis of both social surveys and then also observations of sociologists and others that in Beijing, pipe smoking persisted well into the 1930s and even into the 1940s, although cigarettes were obviously being used by people who thought of themselves as progressive and modern or those who had a bit more discretionary income uh, to uh, purchase um, what turns out to have been a more expensive form of tobacco. And in Dingxian, which I use as, a, as the rural case study, um, I wish in retrospect that I had been able to look at more um, data on other parts of rural China because I think Dingxian is a very particular place and perhaps um, you know this is a weaker part of the chapter. Nonetheless, what I found in Dingxian is that actually the per capita smoking rates were really quite low. And even though cigarettes were quite available and people purchased them, they likely were purchasing them as luxury items to provide to guests or to use on special occasions such as weddings and funerals and so on, rather than smoking them individually by themselves. This really surprised me. I really thought that by the 1930s, cigarettes would have displaced pipe tobacco in many areas of the country, including a place like Dingxian. And the fact that all the evidence I turned up suggested that that was not the case indicated to me or suggested to me that we have to be very careful as historians of modern China when we're talking about the emergence of consumer culture or modern mass-marketed culture to be very specific about who it is we're talking about, where in China we're talking about, and not to make assumptions that Shanghai is the same as the rest of China. Thank you so much. And this is, again, I won't um, talk about it just uh, in the interest of um, not taking up too much of your time, but there's Chapter 8 um, for listeners really wonderfully looks at this regional differentiation also, um, not just in terms of consumption, but also in terms of um, the way um, the cigarette and the pipe were represented or were used to represent larger um, social and cultural issues, political issues, in the Shanghai style versus the Beijing style of uh, fiction essay writing. Yeah, just very briefly, I mean, my main argument for why there's this differentiation between urban and rural smoking patterns, as well as between 
uh, those with economic means and those without, uh, is an economic argument because I'm saying that cigarettes, even um, some of the least expensive cigarettes, were still out of reach for many people in China in the 1930s. But as the eighth chapter talks about, there was also a cultural construction of the cigarette that occurred globally, not just in China, but around the world, which made the cigarette into the quintessential modern commodity. Um, and this is one of the reasons that urbanites in China took up cigarette smoking in the very beginning, is because it marked them as progressive, um, modern, new, forward-looking, and so on. And at the same, by the same token, the long pipe and the water pipe as well came to be marked as backward um, Chinese uh, traditional, you know, all of these kind of more, not the Chinese negative, but these kind of negative connotations. Uh, and I, I trace that through writing in the 1930s uh, and 1940s and show how some of the icons of modern literature, Lao Shu and others, um, create this trope of the pastoral pipe versus the urban cigarette. And again, going back to our earlier conversation about the 17th century and 18th century literati, there's this long-standing fascination, for whatever reason, in Chinese literary works with smoking and with tobacco. Thank you. Now, the final chapter before the epilogue um, is another really wonderful um, single place where you're bringing a ton of different sorts of um, source material together, including radio and film and comics and magazines um, in an incredibly rich way. Um, So what I want to ask you about this, because you're giving us the story here of um, really the decline of female smoking in China um, in the 20th century and the various reasons for that and the different kinds of social factors that um, bring that about. Can you talk about the ways in which um, this kind of emerging discourse against female smoking was entwined with uh, a prevailing uh, Orientalist discourse, a discussion of it's really an Orientalist discussion of uh, race and social Darwinism and all kinds of stuff that, that I, I think comes out beautifully in this chapter? So throughout the book, and this goes back to the very first theme that we highlighted at the outset, I'm trying to talk about the history of tobacco in China within a global frame, within a world frame. And this is one of the moments in which China's interactions with the outside world are really, really critical and important for what happens within China. Because at the end of the 19th century, well, actually beginning in the 1850s, but it intensifies at the end of the 19th century, there is a globally circulating anti-cigarette discourse that's emerging out of British and American temperance movements which has three thickly entangled strands of argumentation. Um, One has to do with the sexualization of female smoking that occurs in Victorian England and North America, this idea that if a woman smokes, she must be uh, a bad woman, must be uh, not virtuous. That's also combined when... the British and American travelers who come to China and to Japan and find that women smoke quite prolifically um, find this fascinating. And there's constant references in British and American travel literature. This is where the Orientalist trope comes in, 
there's constant refrains about um, Chinese women, Japanese women who smoke, and how strange this is. Um, and then the third strand comes in in the late 19th century in the form of social Darwinism. And the idea, again, this is related to the temperance movement, the idea that tobacco is a gateway drug to opium and alcohol, and that all three of these substances cause the national degeneration of a society. Um, and it's these three ideas, the idea that a woman who smokes is not virtuous, the idea that um, uh, Europeans and Americans are regarding China as backward because um, that's a place in which women smoke. You know, this, this must be an uncivilized society because women smoke here. And most importantly, the idea that smoking by juveniles and by women, because the story of juvenile smoking is important here as well, will cause the national degeneration uh, of China comes to be very profoundly influential on Chinese intellectual reformists like um, uh, Hu Tingfang and uh, Ding Fubao and uh, Liang Qichao to a certain extent and others. Um, so in Chapter 9, I talk about how initially many women smoke. Many of them switch over to cigarettes when cigarettes are introduced. There's a period of time in which women like men, regard cigarette smoking as a progressive or forward-looking thing to do, and particularly at a time when women are stepping out, joining the workforce, going to schools, becoming more public, uh, some women take to smoking cigarettes quite openly and publicly as a sign, a defiant sign of their progressive modernity. This critical discourse, which is being introduced into China by missionaries um, and by hygiene texts that are translated um, translated to hygienic texts and so on, um, begins to be publicized in um, newspapers. Um, some of the reformist intellectuals form anti-cigarette associations targeting juvenile smoking and and so on. And gradually over time, this um, foreign or imported discourse is mixed together with the longer-standing notion that women who smoke publicly, remember we talked about this in, earlier in our conversation, the idea from an earlier age that a woman could smoke quite respectably at home, but were she to smoke openly, outwardly on the street, that might cast aspersions on her character. So these are all combined in a mix that begins to be um, focused on female smoking and comes to fruition in the 1930s in the New Life movement when um, cigarette smoking by anyone is targeted by the New Life movement, but particularly by young urban women. Uh, it's seen as a sign of debauchery and degeneracy and uh, basically unpatriotic because it's undermining China's um, uh, abilities to um, uh, become strong and powerful. Mm -hmm. And that chapter um, talks really nicely about the um, implication of uh, Chiang Kai-shek's wife, Song Meiling, in this New Life movement and the sort of 
uh, contradict not well, possible contradictions between or the negotiation between the fact that she's actually smoking in her personal life, right, but also advocating um, this anti-smoking movement at the same time. Um, so it's it's kind of an interesting uh, negotiation there. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Um, Sung Mei Ling, you know, she grew up in a strict Methodist. No. Was it Methodist? I know um, Chiang Kai-shek was Methodist. Well, a strict Christian household. And um, we're dancing and all of these things were forbidden. But she herself um, was a graduate of Wellesley College, and that's where she learned to smoke. And this is the period of time in which in the United States, young women in the 1920s, when young women are using cigarettes as that kind of torture freedom to show that they are um, new women, and I think Sung Mei Ling um, picked that up when she was in Wellesley. She smoked her entire life until she died at age of 105. But as co-author of the New Life Movement, who actually wrote um, editorials and, and speak, gave speeches and so on during the campaign, she herself, at that point in time, had to go underground, as it were, um, uh, with her cigarettes. And she didn't smoke openly in the 1930s, so far as I know. I do have pictures of her once she's uh, relocated to Taiwan and then New York. I do have pictures of her smoking later in life. But for that particular period of time, she had to give up, forego her, her public smoking, although she, like a respectable woman of an earlier age, uh, continues smoking in private. Her husband, of course, Tang Jie was a lifelong non-smoker, and he did not drink either. Well, speaking of men and smoking, uh, the the um, epilogue of the book, and I won't um, ask you about this, um, just in the interest of respecting your time and so that we don't keep you too long, um, but I'll just mention for listeners that the epilogue of the book takes this story from um, 1949 through 2010 and looks at um, the further transformations of tobacco culture um, in the PRC, including the masculinization of cigarette, cigarette smoking. Um, and finally, the dis- a discussion of the uh, tobacco control movement in China today, which is also um, really interesting and brings this story up to the present uh, and present concerns. Yeah, that's why I could title it to 2010, <laughs> the epilogue. But I, you know, I was asked in another context what I would do differently about the book or what, what was left undone. And I would say that there's a really interesting story to be told about what happens to the tobacco industry under the Maoist, uh, during the Maoist period. Because it seems pretty clear to me that it's between 1949 and 1978 that the cigarette becomes truly a mass-marketed commodity, uh, certainly in the cities, uh, perhaps is a bit later in the countryside. Um, but we don't know very much about that. So that would be a fascinating story about how the communists actually take cigarettes and make them a popular um, mass-marketed commodity. Thank you. Write that down. So, Carol, we've taken up a whole lot of your time, and thank you so much um, for doing this. I know there's a, there's a lot of very rich material in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Um, is there anything else about the book that we didn't cover but that you'd like to especially point out for listeners who may not yet have had the opportunity to read it? Well, there's some really fun pictures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the cover is just lovely. University of California Press did a beautiful job on the cover. It, it in itself is a bit orientalist because it shows a Chinese smoker up against the Great Wall. It's a beautiful photograph by taken by Hedda Morrison. But um, once I saw it, I thought, oh, this 
I have to have this picture for my cover. But um, other than that, I can't think of You've been very thorough with your questions. Oh, in the images also, I think we could talk for another hour about um, some of those. There's just fantastic um, images of uh, newspaper comics and photographs um, in there that really, I think, enrich the whole project. This is the other, you know, um, this, there's a wonderful, because tobacco is a material object, as we talked about, there's a wonderful visual culture um, associated with tobacco across the centuries. And, uh, you know, maybe some point I'll do a visual culture of Chinese tobacco smoking. That would be great. And, and speaking of which, what, what is next for you? What are you working on now that this, um, this book is wrapped up? Well, um, my next project, I, I've been teaching at Georgetown for many years now. I've been teaching a course called The History of the Pacific World, which is basically an effort to set world history in a smaller geographical frame and to look at world historical themes um, played out across the Pacific Ocean, um, basically modeled on the Atlantic world and courses that deal with the Atlantic world. So there's a lot of integration of the Americas with um, with Asia, with East and Southeast Asia. But one of the th lectures I give every year in that class has to do with resource rating in the Pacific Ocean, things like um, otter furs and um, uh, sea cucumbers and sandalwood and all of these commodities that initially the Southeast Asians and then the British and the Americans when they start sailing around the Pacific in the 18th century are taking up in astronomical portions in order to sell to the Chinese. So the story of the resource rating has been well told by historians of England and the United States, as well as Southeast Asia. But when we get to the point where some, when the story says the products are being taken up in order to be sold in China, the story kind of ends. And I know there's been a lot of good work by Chinese scholars. For example, Zhou Xiang has worked on the um, sea otter trade, the history, the internal history of the sea otter, of what happens to sea otter furs once they get into China. But no one has really pulled these dis disparate um, commodities together and talked about why demand for these products in China creates this resource rating in the first place. So that's a long-winded way of saying I'm hoping to do a Pacific world history centered on China and to bring Chinese consumer culture into the Pacific world story to try to look at, okay, so sandalwood is being used obviously for incense and furniture and other things, but, you know, where, where in China, who's consuming this? Where does this go? You know, why is the sandalwood being cut down in such um, proportions on Hawaii and various other places. So I'm just starting it, and I don't know how it's going to work out, but that's my new project. I would love to read that book. It's fascinating. We can talk about that as well when you're done with it. Yeah, well, again, it's an effort to situate China uh, in the broader world, um, but again, in a specific corner of the world, uh, the Pacific Ocean Basin. Well, Carol, thank you so much um, for making the time to talk with us today. This is an absolutely fascinating book, and I think um, scholars who know lots of stuff about Chinese history, scholars who know nothing about Chinese history, um, will all get a lot out of it. Um, so thank you so much for making the time. Oh, thanks for doing the interview. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. Oh, my pleasure. 
You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks so much, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time.